0: Today I come to you as a young person, as a young woman, as a young black woman to ask you to use us, use the young people of the United States of America to pave a road that will last forever, pave a road that will let us become the foot soldiers, let us not have to do this again for our children. We ask you to let us come forth with you, not behind you, not in front of you, but together on that road to jobs, justice. And
1: peace. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast hosted by two men who don't hate women, unlike certain legislations, it seems like, right? Yeah, it's coming up. We have some very unfortunate things to have to talk about in the final movement today. We're here. This is the last opus of Triloquy for Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. This is dropping on the uh, final day of March. As much as we love to champion women you know i've learned so much personally this month uh, that i didn't uh, know before between some of the music you've brought in mm-hmm. and documentaries i've uh, watched on on my own time as much as we love that it's painful but i think necessary to name these issues that impact women specifically disproportionately, especially as men. Silences violence when it comes to racial equity and also when it comes to gender equity. So I think so too. We're gonna name some things today. How are you feeling? Today,
2: better than last week, I can tell you that we had seventy degrees today. But uh, talk about a bad hair day—fifty mile per hour winds (laughs) and all the garbage in the neighborhood pools by my house, you know, by the garage. So, but hey, it's nice. It's it's fire. It's bonfire weather again.
1: Yeah. So I'm going start having some outdoor fires. Something that I've been getting into on my own time is this philosophy that sort of speaks to the positive and negative of a thing, mm-hmm. making it true and being able to... Um, uh, recognize those things out of a situation. I think you do that really well, naming the good, naming what sucks about the good. I'm trying. (laughs) But nothing but good. When I think about all of you listening, thank you so much for returning to Opus 94 of the Triloquy podcast, returning listeners. Thank you. Huge ups to y'all for your continued support to new listeners. Thank you for checking us out. This podcast is one hosted by two men, not only two men who don't hate women, but two men who have uh, a lot of proximity to so-called classical music and uh, even more proximity to the rest of the world. So we bring those two things together every week and and see what happens. You know... it is
2: important to acknowledge every single day of Women's History Month, but we've never shied away from women's stories on this podcast ever. Mm-mm, so, no.
1: But I think Women's History Month, it's, you know, Women's History Month, uh, mm-hmm. uh, an opportunity for us to really focus in on the history that uh, we don't right. always talk about. And we even got into a lot of it. On uh, during Black History Month because mm-hmm. you know Black History Month should censor women as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah. yeah so anyway, so uh, returning listeners and new listeners, thank you for checking us out. Continued support for the Triloquy Podcast come from the American Composers Forum announcing a job opening for Vice President of Development. This job, uh, the salary range starts at ninety thousand dollars. Scott, anytime someone asks me to shout out a job opening or Or post it. I tell them, "Look, is the uh, is the salary at the top? Can Mm -hmm. we see the salary immediately?" And that is something that the American Composers Forum hears when it comes to. It's always annoying when
2: you see something you like, and then it goes down to the salary range competitive, right? (laughs) Well,
1: competitive to what? So uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm on the board. You know, folks who who know me and have been listening know I'm on the board on the American Composers Forum. I um, am actually chair of the Equity Committee. I encourage everyone to um, you know if you're interested in this and you have the skill set and the experience to be a vice president of development to check it out. There are a lot of organizations out there, Scott, arts organizations saying things. I think. ACF is one of the ones really trying to push and trying to do the right thing. Um, Vanessa Rose, huge shout-out to her, the CEO over there. If you don't know Vanessa and you would like to get to know her in any way, just sort of see what her vibes are, uh, check out the overture to Season 2 of Triloquy over at Triloquy.org. So huge shout-out to everyone over at the American Composers Forum. Today's downbeat, Scott, comes from Stacey Abrams. All of the work that she did... Mm Mm-hmm. And Georgia reacted, didn't they? Another part of the triloquy today.
2: Yes. Uh, shocking how quickly that went through. Uh, like in the cover of night, they push all this legislation through in a handful of days. I mean,
1: what were you... How did you describe the canceling of the Dixie Chicks last week? You said too sweet. Too sweet. I mean, that's... that's Immediate. Ooh. But yeah. women, but, when, but women's history, Stacey Abrams definitely did some of that, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, and
2: she's getting back to work now, so we, you know... I, I, I guess the fight continues,
1: not help is on the way, but the fight continues. Right, Yeah. Right, absolutely. She's still working, thank goodness. Speaking of the fight continuing, today's guest for the third movement, it was my great honor to speak with Luis Toppin, a soprano coloratura, um, a music professor, and someone who has really been embedded in this work for years and years. One of the things we talk about, Scott, um, uh, Dr. Toppin says that... She's been in this work of just centering black music for so long. This resurgence that we've been seeing makes it feel like she has started her career all over again. So, oh yeah, it's it's, mm. it's it was it was uh, really my honor to uh, hear from her. I can't wait to share that with y'all. Cool. We have some uh, great music uh, by women to uh, go through today. Lots of other great conversation. So, let's go ahead and uh, jump into this first movement. I want to get the first movement started, Scott, with uh, maybe a, a, a quick natural, I'll call it, uh, just highlighting something from last week. One of the artists you brought in was Adia Victoria. Mm-hmm. And we talk about so much music and get on our tangents. We always don't spend the time with every artist that last we really week need to really Last week was really yeah. full. Last week was a full week, too. Well, I just want to say that um, I, I constantly go back through the Triloquy Tracks playlist on Spotify and check out the uh, tunes we've talked about. i returned to South Gotta Change many, many, many times. Yeah. Set with it in front of my keyboard, incredible composition. So uh shout out and uh, an extra highlight to Adia Victoria from last week. Some music that's come out since last week, at least a music video that has the people up in arms is by the one and only Lil Nas X. I'm uh putting a sharp in front of Montero, so... Mm-hmm. Did this come, did this organically come in front of your eyes or am I the one who's told this about, okay. No, I
2: I saw you post something. It was the stripper pull to hell that did it for me. (laughs) And I didn't know what you were talking about. So I felt like, okay, I need to get, uh, I need to get versed in what you're talking about. What is he talking about? Yeah. Um, I went and I watched the video once. Um, I can appreciate the artistic effort that went into it. And there was some really dazzling visual things. Uh, but I have to say that's not for me. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm probably not going to be spending a lot of time with this track. It, it didn't have the old town road vibe to
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> a a so, slightly different aesthetic, <laughs> right? So
2: this may be an instance where I have to, where I do have to spend some time with it and think about it to begin to appreciate it more fully. Like I said, no disrespect. He's obviously talented and he obviously oh, yeah. has an artistic
1: vision, but this isn't my track. You talk about, well, it's hard to... I, I have yet to experience the song separate from the video. Mm-hmm. I need to just put my earbuds in and actually really break down the words and, and all of Good that. Good point. I did it from the video as well. So. Um, for, for folks who don't know what we're talking about, Lil Nas X put out a video that has uh, the Christians upset. Uh, you mentioned... Uh, our, but, but I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of this article I have pulled up, but you mentioned uh, you appreciated the artistic value of it. One of the things that I... I guess the thing that I appreciated most about the video was, in the beginning, the depiction of the Garden of Eden and his introduction to sexuality um, as this evil thing, you know, the serpent in the garden. And I think that is the experience for so many queer people and maybe even people who aren't queer, that first um, sort of experience that really shouldn't be bad Feeling like something dirty or yeah, something you shouldn't be. I'll be right. I, I, I appreciated um, Lil Nas X depicting that there. I'm reading here from Variety.com. The name of the article is Lil Nas X Claps Back at Critics of Montero Video. It says, Following the release of his red hot music video for Montero, Call Me By Your Name, Lil Nas X isn't holding back when it comes to responding to haters on Twitter. The video, which dropped on March 25th and is already trending number one on YouTube, features the old. Old Town Road singer pole dancing into hell and giving the devil a lap dance, which has caused backlash from conservative groups.
2: I don't get that part. Why? <laughs> <laughs> if he went up and was doing it
1: on God or Goddess... <laughs> Wouldn't that have been something to upset? That they really would have been mad if Lil Nas Nazes was given a um, a lap dance to the son of God. See, it seems right. See, it <laughs> seems
2: to me that if he goes down into hell and gives the devil a lap dance, call
1: devil, they uh, would be saying, "Devils, anyway." They would be saying, "See, mm-hmm. see what
2: we're see what I, they're probably worried about. minors watching it and and getting." um indoctrinated isn't that their word indoctrination and as
1: Nicki minaj shout out to Nicki minaj for the third week in a row you know lil Nas x is one of her stands you know is a mm. barb so all of the fantastical elements and the outrageousness of it all you can see Nicki minaj's mm. um influence there mm. she was on the view one time And famously said, I'm not not showing skin because of five and six year olds, because (laughs) five and six year olds have to be parented by their parents. And I agree. We have to stop acting like these celebrities, these artists doing their thing need to be centering your child and what parental controls you aren't putting on the remote control or whatever. Mm. If you really care that much about it. Um, One thing that I think is important to note about this conversation is that. Devil, so-called devil music or proximity to the occult through music is nothing new at all. We can go all the way back into the European classical. This podcast is called Triloquy, Mm -hmm. you know, so of course I'm just familiar with... Uh, trill music, as it were, in classical music. And um, a piece of music that I always think about is uh, just, I, I think it's Giuseppe Tartini. Last name is definitely Tartini. Oh, the Devil's uh, Trill. The Devil's Trill mm. Sonata. Story I always tell. I'm uh, an undergraduate, I'm listening to the public radio station there, shout out to WKNO-FM, and um, I pull up in the driveway and I'm hearing the end of this violin sonata that just sounds really dope, and I sit there, I'm late to class because I'm waiting for the announcer, shout out to Kaki Walton, Mm. to come on and say what this was, and that's when I first learned heavy um, Tartini's Devil's Trill Sonata. You think they were outside back then in the uh, 1700s picketing because he wrote this piece of music about a dream about the devil? Probably. <laughs> you think they were mad? Probably. Well, that's probably
2: what they <laughs> what got him bent out of shape. Uh, think about Niccolo Paganini, who cultivated oh, yeah. he cultivated that look purposefully the gaunt, um, dressed all in black, yeah. uh, dour expressions all the time. You know. Um, he wanted people to think that, you know, <laughs> that he, would, he was possessed. Because, <laughs> and he would roll his
1: eyes back in his head when he played all that. These folks were something else, wasn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you, got, you have uh, Faust. Yeah, Damnation of Faust. The first piece of music that I heard live. So, I, you know, I have memories there. Um, Soldier's Tale. If you you play one of the Soldier's Tale instruments, you know, bassoon, violin, clarinet, trombone, trumpet, percussion. I think I'm uh, forgetting about somebody. But anyway, that's a a piece of music by Stravinsky where the devil wins, you know. yeah. Um, But anyway, you know, fast forwarding to, you know, more contemporary music. Are there uh, examples that you can think of of music involving the devil or or Satan that have folks in an uproar? O- over dinner. We were talking about. Yeah,
2: this is. It was uh, right around 1980, 1982. A friend of mine in the neighborhood. Found an interview on a cassette tape with this guy who was talking about backward masking. Oh right. And if you don't know what backward masking is and you don't mind messing with your uh, the needle re- on the needle name. on your record player, mm-hmm. try playing a vocal section backwards, you know, uh, go counterclockwise and see if you can hear words. This guy had spent the time to listen to certain rock albums, and when he played them backwards, he heard all of what he considered the you know devil worship or mm-hmm. or uh, calls to suicide. The, Engel, the Eagles in Hotel California faced it. Um, Styx, the band Styx. Um, there was Lo- uh, Iron Maiden, uh, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne. All, there's loads of people who have been accused of being devil worshipers, or uh, the band KISS, they said, oh, that stands for Knights in Satan's Service. Oh, okay. That's what... I mean, it's all bollocks, right? But a friend of mine in the neighborhood hears this interview, gets freaked out because he has some of these albums... And he goes and gets some gas and some gunpowder from his father's hunting room. And y'all are children. Yeah, go on. yeah. And we uh, <laughs> and we went in the backyard and we lit up a bunch of LPs. You know, they were all his. It didn't bother me at all. He's like, yeah, I pour more gas on there. That's cool. So, did you go back and
1: backtrack some of your records to see if uh, you could hear anything? Did you ever try?
2: it? Uh, no, I never did. Um, I didn't have any of the albums that the guy was citing, um, and. I had so few records at that time, you you would have to fight me (laughs) to get one of them,
1: yeah. Mm, Well, anyway, uh, shout out to Lil Nas X. As you say, Scott, it's not your jam. I don't know how many more times I will watch the video myself, but I love the freedom of it. Um, I am excited that there is a young, black, queer artist out here with the freedom to make all of these people mad, Mm. you know, just for being it's cool. I love to see it. We love to see it. Tying uh, all of this in, this concept with women's history, we were talking about Sinead O'Connor a little bit. And I do think that this is um, an an important and significant bit of women's history to sort of highlight at the intersection of music and all of that. How about you refresh us as to what had happened? In
2: 1992, Sinead O'Connor was the musical guest on Saturday Night Live. She did an acapella version of "Success Has Made a Failure of Our Home," and afterward, uh, and I think the second set she did an acapella version of "War," and held up a, a photo of Pope John Paul II, and ripped it in half, and threw it up in the air. You know, and she she was trying to draw attention to, all of the instances of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, and she's saying, you know, we need to be um going after the leaders that are, you know, perpetuating these things. And and um she was <laughs> uh about like the Dixie Chicks. She was blacklisted for a long time. They were mad at her. And the the very next week they had Joe Pesci on and they held up a taped together version of the photo, you know, that that had been all taped together uproarious applause he said that if he was the guest when she did that he would have smacked her you know all of this is online you can find all of it
1: well I think in retrospect Sinead O'Connor won the war here's a little bit of that tune success has made a failure of our home
3: we used to go out walking hand in hand you told me all the big things you had planned. It wasn't long till all your dreams came true. Success put me in second place with you.
1: you Just as the conversation of, the of sexual dead. abuse in the Catholic Church continues, so does the saga between Daniel Bernard Romaine and the Tulsa. Opera. Oh, you've got an update, huh? They uh, the story is still sort of out there. We haven't gotten a lot more information, but more and more people are certainly talking about it, and more um, avenues are picking it up. I'm reading a little bit here from Vulture. I'm going to post this article on in the description of this because as we were talking about last week. The thing that Tulsa Opera did that so many of us have an issue with is pon- positioning one of their their black singers, Denise Graves, in opposition mm-hmm. to Daniel Bernard Remain, mm-hmm. creating this him versus her situation instead of Daniel Bernard Remain against the opera company. I think this article from Vulture by... Justin Curto. Justin Curto, the screen is far away from me, really does a great job of making the point that it was the opera that did this. The other thing that this article does that I think is very important is uh, <laughs> kind of affirm in a very shady way that not all skin folk is kin folk. It says here, Tobias Picker, the artistic director, tells Vulture it is shocking that Remain saw a racial dynamic in the interaction. Quote, I wasn't stifling his voice i was giving him a note he says howard watkins who is black and a co- Uh, curator, says he asked Picker to curate the program with him and tells Vulture, it didn't even occur to us that this would be interpreted as a race issue. He calls it reverse racist and a bit offensive, actually, for Remain to call out Picker, given that Picker is curating an event that uplifts black composers. You see how ghetto classical music is? (laughs) Mm. Reverse racism? You have people in positions of power and Scott, this is a conversation that I do think is uncomfortable in certain spaces, in mixed spaces, because I don't like using my platform to talk against black people, to be, to be anti-black. No. We have here an example of a black person in a position of power helping the structure go along. I'm challenged. I'm challenged. What is your reaction <laughs> to the implication, the allegation of... Daniel being reverse racist for implying that race is an issue in a concert dealing with the Tulsa race riots.
2: Well, and, I, guess that, I guess that I can quote him and say, uh, reverse racism would not have occurred to me. <laughs> 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 um, but um, I, I also have to question, I wasn't stifling his voice, I was giving him a note. Mm-hmm. But didn't it come out, didn't, didn't the story say... We're not going to perform this piece, and you will still get your full commission price. Mm-hmm. How okay? So how did that? How is that
1: a note? I think it's also it's a goodbye yes. note. It's also important to note that this article states that they have uh, they tried to get someone else to sing uh, the lyric oh, uh, uh Goddamn mm. America," but they couldn't find anyone. Scott, like I said last, and I named. Women's names, mm-hmm. you know, I have talked to many opera singers that would love the opportunity, but we're getting to the point to where, where the people, the populace, the folks on the ground, we know the difference between a prepared statement and you know what's really going down the 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 evidence is there mm. and it's it's really pitiful so anyway that saga continues we'll see if it continues to continue and it's... did
2: you put a flat by that or did
1: you oh yeah oh yeah that get actually i put a natural here because oh. i want to applaud vulture for not well for pointing out making it clear what happened as far as yeah, the sort of I positioning wanted... of denise graves against uh dbr so um shout out to shout out to y'all over there i found a a performance by Denise Graves. We've been saying her name a lot, so Mm -hmm. I figured we should um, hear from her. Incredible singer who has really been uh, historic in many ways, despite many people's challenges with her decision to not sing uh, the written lyrics of this piece of music by Daniel Bernard Remain Anyway, I found a a tune of hers called Scandalize My Name. Fully, fully appropriate for the moment, right? (laughs) Here's a little bit of that.
3: Scandalize my name. He scandalizes my name. He scandalizes my name.
0: He scandalized my name, y'all. All
1: right, Scott, rounding out this week's accidentals with a sharp something that I think. Maybe it's some good news, some light at the end of a very, very long tunnel. Mm. Long, probably not long enough. You said something enough. there. <laughs> this is coming from uh, uh, Men MenPost, com. Title of the article, when can the arts reopen? Dr. Fauci says, if we are careful sometime in the fall. Here's a little bit from it. With vaccinations rising, COVID-19 deaths falling, venues still shuttered, and many artists out of work for more than a year, arts organizations want to know, how soon can we reopen? How fully? With what practices in place? In January, the National Endowment for the Arts released a report, The Art of Reopening, a guide to current practices among arts organizations during COVID-19. On Tuesday afternoon, March 23rd, they followed up with a webinar, The Art of Reopening, a virtual conversation of re- engaging arts audiences in physical spaces Seven thousand people attended i'll have that posted in the description for y'all to read but long story short we need to continue to be uh, physically distance as much as possible vigilant wearing our damn mask for fuck's sake somebody came over so I'll, i'll put my tea out somebody came over here the day the maintenance man came to the door talking about oh i forgot my mask well you can't just forget your mask that is something that you need, okay? Let me not get into my feelings, but anyway, Dr. Fauci <laughs> said that hopefully by fall we can go to um, we can go see mm-hmm. Beethoven. I guess. What do you think? Do you mm-hmm. think that's uh, hopeful or do you think that's realistic? A, a a a September where all of the orchestras, all of the folks have their doors back open.
2: I think it's hopeful. Yeah, I really do think it's hopeful because if you look at the way things are spiking again. And how they had a three-person panel, the the woman that normally reports with Dr. Fauci every mm-hmm. day, she used the words impending doom. She's nervous about, I, and I'm sorry that I've forgotten her name, but she's t- uh, nervous about a fourth wave. And on my end of town, the uh, the amount of people going maskless, you know, it's, it's like they've already been vaccinated and we have herd immunity. Uh, people are just tired of it, I guess. And... I don't know. It, I think that that's. I think it's optimistic that we're going to be back in the fall.
1: Yeah, that's Rochelle Walensky. I'll I'll, I'll post that article too because I didn't see her saying that uh, that we're all doomed. Not but. just
2: saying she's uh, she. There's impending doom. Uh, trying to hold back tears as she said this, visibly shaken, according to the report.
1: Ooh, well, mm, mm, so mm. Uh,
2: I don't know. It seems like people are getting a little cavalier a little too soon. Yeah, I agree. And. Uh, I, I think that the the last place that you want to stop running is the last 100 yards of the marathon. Exactly,
1: exactly. Well, let's say that by some miracle, vaccinations go through and uh, we are back in September. We've had a lot of Zoom panels, so I guess the concert halls are just going to be filled with diversity, right? <laughs> it all worked. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> 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 what What... What te- what tells you that uh, that that's not going to be the case? Because we have story.
2: It? Because we have stories like this in the headlines. Mm. Because we have stories like uh, Tulsa and the Met. Yeah. in the headlines, still. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that it is still going. You know, you keep bringing back ten to fifteen years, and there might have been some hyperbole way back in my announcement after your termination, mm-hmm. but. Maybe, I, I don't know if it, if it's, if there's a lot, I don't, I don't know. I'll,
1: I'll, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take my hat off because <laughs> the, the way it's looking, it's so hard not to want to give up. I tell you, yeah. It, it, every other day, I go see how much they pay to work at McDonald's in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. So,
3: so,
1: somebody needs a big man. Try Starbucks first, <laughs> and and that's the that's the food of my culture, so. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'll probably be a manager. <laughs> <laughs> listen. Oh, that's bad. Listen. What do you want what's gonna get you in any sort of crowd? What sort of concert will you who has to come through town for you to say, Okay, I'm I'm going in September?
2: I really miss this series that I used to go to called The Real Phonic Radio Hour, and it was roots and folk and things like that. Mm. I saw some amazing bands come through, but the thing about that was it was limited. There was maybe 200 people, and so there was space. The volume was at a spot where you you could hear everything well, but you could still turn to your buddy and say, man, that was amazing. Um, I miss that, but in order to get me to go out, it's going to have to be a spectacle. I'm going to quote Devon Gray uh, from Opus 12. It's going to have to be a spectacle. There's going to have to be a music component, a dance component, uh, the the design and art component. It's going to have to be so many different things coming together to lure me out. It's going to have to be a spectacle.
1: Like I said, a couple weeks ago, uh, when I, when we were talking about the Grammys, that Cardi B performance mm-hmm. with the LED screens and mm-hmm. the I need that something like yeah sure <laughs> I, I need that Beethoven four is not going to do it. I need ballet dancers and pole dancers. I want a line <laughs> dance in between and all that. Oh. And in, in grand attire. <laughs> of course, there's a little bit of hyperbole. I don't if If the Minnesota Orchestra or somebody had, uh, you know, I don't know, William Grant still won on a program, mm-hmm. maybe if, maybe... Like even even that from from an academic standpoint, I, I'd have I I, I just. I, I feel like uh, the, the arts institutions have to work for my ticket. Let's, and more of us need to have that attitude. Let's
2: build a ticket. Let's put DBR's piece on there with Goddamn America in mm-hmm. the lyric. Let's put yes. that. What? What? How would you fill out that program if you put DBR's piece on? And I'm sorry, I only know him as DBR. His The composer's full name
1: is? Yeah, Daniel Bernard Romaine. Okay. Yeah, but so. but, uh, but I, I think DBR is fine. Okay,
2: so let's take his piece. His uh, We'll call that the anchor. Okay, so how are you going to fill out the program?
1: Okay, so uh, we have Goddamn America. Cup. I would want, I would invite Joelle Thompson, oh. but a piece that is not Seven Last Words of the Unwrapped. Okay, okay. okay. We, we do that. And I would love for there to be um, a big orchestral transcription of something that you know got us through the pandemic, one of these big pop songs. I mean, I don't know, maybe Old Town Road or some making okay. the Stallion or Beyonce, something like that, that can, A uh, spectacle. T- can get us there. We do those things. The concert is about 40 minutes. We're not there all night, and, it's, and we're good to go. Fair.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think the time limit is good too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and plus, I'm over 50, so can we start around six? <laughs>
1: Uh, when when you think about concerts in the before for time is there a concert uh, specifically one that uh featured a woman as we're you know centering women's history your own women's history i suppose in your live uh, concert experience one
2: lit up right away i saw tracy chapman at sandstone amphitheater in kansas city in the late 90s. I don't know the exact year, but uh, it had rained all day the day before and had uh, dried up just enough so that everybody could sit down. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those magic sunsets, very calm. And Tracy is up there singing, just sounding exactly like she did on her albums.
1: She's amazing. I know I gave uh, Miss Tracy Chapman a hard time a few weeks back when there was some drama with Nicki Minaj and sampling and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I said then, I'll, re- I'll repeat it now. Nikki is a legend that we need to repeat. There's no, uh, that we need to um, honor. There is no denying that Tracy Chapman is a legend, bringing a complete aesthetic to black folks that we wouldn't have got any other way Mm. you know the the type of music that she was created because she was black Mm. that was palatable to people in my circle and that's how we know her name i Mm. mean give me one reason just again just the guitar playing i can see how that could be a great sample for a rap song because that music is so um incredible but of course there are many many others i
2: heard her right from the beginning with fast car so yeah. yeah, so I've I've been there since the beginning.
1: There's a she did a cover, and I found this back I think back in the Napster or even Kazaa days. You remember Kazaa? Yeah, I do. It towed up everybody's computer. Yep. Uh, a, a Tracy Chapman doing a cover of Wonderwall, and I haven't <laughs> found it. I, I, I maybe it just doesn't huh. exist anymore, or Tracy Chapman has it locked in the vault. Yeah, like, I hadn't heard that. So so much so much great stuff, but the piece of music in particular that you like would like to. Uh, to highlight here as we transition into the second movement is what?
2: It's called Baby Can I Hold You? And when she performed this live, the natural daylight was almost gone. The lights for the rest of the show were just starting to fire up. And it was just a a magic spiritual moment. Sorry
1: Beautiful imagery and beautiful music, Scott, mm. to get us into this second movement where we strike a chord, talk about the music that moved us. We we will not and could not get through Women's History Month without uh, me leaving a little bit of room in the second movement to honor <laughs> Beyonce. Uh,
2: I thought you were going to give the whole second
1: movement to her. <laughs> <laughs> we're equitable here on the Triloquy Podcast, mm-hmm. but everyone knows how much I love Beyonce. I love Beyonce. Um, in the announcements, I talked about a job opening at the American Composers Forum. Mm-hmm. Last week, um, Triloquy had the opportunity to uh, sponsor, in part, um, a talk um, between myself and Jessica McJunkins, a uh, Lady Jess, a, a Triloquy um alum. season one guest, a Triloquy alum, just talking about some of that and really breaking down Beyoncé's homecoming Um, as a work of art as a representation of what an orchestra could look like she described that ensemble as a black orchestra Mm. and in acknowledging the fact that there are all sorts of types of orchestras around the world when we talk about uh, uh, gamelan orchestras and Mm -hmm. you know maybe even a ukulele orchestra I mean just all, all we we can't um, chain that word orchestra to one aesthetic. And I think Beyonce's Homecoming is a great example of, mm. of that uh, bit of the conversation. You know, you talked about um, how much you enjoyed uh, the live performance that you heard of Tracy Chapman, uh, have you found uh, that you typically prefer live or a studio version of a song that you love by one of your favorite artists? Do you usually gravitate to one or the other?
2: That depends, because typically when I really fall in love with a piece, the first time, the first recording that I hear it becomes the benchmark. Mm. You know what I mean? So the first time you fall in love with something, you want to go back to that That's sound, a good point, yeah. to that sound every time. And I have heard some live versions of studio tracks that I love. That the live version, I go, ah, yep. you ruined it. But sometimes, if I'm sitting there in the audience and I hear right. a kick-ass live version, then I'm like, oh man, that that burned the house down. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it really depends. Um, um, which one you fall in love with first. Yeah. But
1: I do t- I do typically gravitate to the studio versions. I, I do too. But when you say that it's the one you heard first, I think that's a good point because usually that is what we hear first. So obviously I hear the the studio versions of all of Beyonce's tunes first. The The song I wanted to highlight, I, I don't think I've highlighted it on a Triloquy before. There, there are so many tunes that I could really do a breakdown of. But um on um, Beyonce's album Four, an album that I think people in general sort of overlook, there's a tune called I Care. It's one of those slow, um, you know, uh, you know, break up going through my feeling songs Mm. that, you know, a lot of people, I think, at that time really wrote off. Well, Beyonce for her homecoming performance really uh, did a great feature of that song, I Care. It brought it back to life for me and the arrangement for, again, her, what she described as her black orchestra in that setting with the live vocals. That tune has quickly become my favorite Beyonce moment. Mm. It's hard for me to Name a favorite Beyonce composition, but that is for sure my favorite. Beyonce moment. I think that there are so many aspects of it that speak to um, so-called classical training and classical technique. There's an incredible guitar solo mm.
0: um,
1: in in the song that Beyonce sings on top of, you know, depicting those moments when you really are just breaking down. You know, mm. not many artists can musically depict the, the I'm on my floor crying tears and turning that into music. Well, Beyonce did that with this tune. I am I am moved every time I hear it when I'm feeling away, even Scott, about the business of triloquy. You know, back in the days when we would bump heads a little bit, I would I would come on and and listen to the song and just that that's my way of processing. Hmm. Incredible, incredible composition. I wanna um I wanna share a little bit of the opening of it here because I think it's really strong. Here's a little bit of I care by Beyonce from Homecoming.
3: you
2: You know that I said my favorite Beyoncé track was "Formation." Mm-hmm. I've, it's upgraded since um, new releases have come out, and what is it? Uh, "Black Is King." Mm-hmm. When when that album came out, the track that she did with Kendrick Lamar, "Nile." Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. And I also like the one right after "Brown Skin Girl," um, "Already." That's uh, with Major Laz- Major Laser.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> there there are a lot of uh, artists there from the from the motherland. So. Uh, I, I, Beyonce, what 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 can be said? What can be said? Let me let me ask you this, before we move on from Beyonce. Oh, here we go. You at, at fifty, nearly fifty one years old, you were there for a lot of the legends. You were there for Patti LaBelle. You were there for Gladys Knight, Madonna. You know all of these. I'm sure you can name many many Tina others. Tina Turner. Yeah, t- yeah, a legend among legends. Roberta Flack. Having been there for those women, do you think Beyonce will be included in that no, in that so. museum yeah. exhibit in that in that chapter of the encyclopedia?
2: I think so. Yeah, um, without question, it, it's a it's a different sort of royalty, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That that she has, but um, we wouldn't have a Beyonce if it wasn't for the likes of Tina Turner and Gladys Knight. You know, the some of the women that laid the foundation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want everyone to think of your contemporary favorite, you know, we can talk about all the phenomenal women of days past, but someone who is out making music today, you too, Scott, your your, fav- your favorite woman in music. All right, does everyone have her in mind? Okay. She could never against Beyonce. Go on. Go on.
2: What music do you have for us, Scott? Um, I wanted to... I don't know if, if it's going to compare now since it's been set up against Beyonce, but... We talked two opuses ago about the idea of an extended technique when we were talking about slide guitar. Right, yeah,
1: so-called extended technique.
2: Right, and I I like somebody, uh, somebody said on your timeline, or as I like to call them, techniques. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. I thought, ooh, touche, good point. Um, The incorporation of electronics is happening more and in really interesting ways, and I wanted to highlight two women that, I really enjoyed what they were doing with the cello and a few pedals. Uh, First, Julia Kent, who, you know, there's a tendency to want to put a label on some music, so I'm going to say this is like a neo-impressionist piece. Okay, here we go. Okay, because she's using uh, her cello with a delay pedal, so she's getting this really interesting echo sort of effect. I don't know how she's getting the little bell sound in there, but you can tell that she's using a delay, and a loop pedal, and she can build a song in the moment, like lay down a backing track and then solo over the top, right? Right. it's really interesting. Um, and it's so dreamy. And when I was listening to this, we had a really windy day a couple weeks ago, and I know how you feel about using music to relax sure. or unwind, but you have to admit, that there are sometimes when a certain piece of music is so complementary to an experience. So I'm on my porch, I'm having a little smoke, having a little beer, and the wind is blowing the leaves in such a way that the music was spot on. It was so good. The other one, uh, also a cellist and using some electronics, Zoe Keating. You probably know that name. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to classify, I would have to put this one more in neoclassical. You know, um, whereas the neo-impressionist stuff from Julia, you know, you you might struggle to find the one <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> or exactly what count she's following. Right. right, But this uh, this track by um, oh, I should say. That track by Julia Kent was called Through the Window. Yes. This one by Zoe Keating is called Sun Will Set. And you can you can hear her building this one on the fly. a little bit of that for you what sort of a box would you put that in if you had to
1: i i would uh if i had to like go into that that sort of categorization of that music i would say contemporary classical okay i think that's where it belongs
2: but working on the uh the idea of extended techniques or techniques Mm -hmm. um and being able to record a track on your own go and set up somewhere on a street corner or or in a cafe somewhere, and be a whole band with just some electronics. I mean, I think that's on the. Uh, it's not on. It's not on the horizon. It's here. You right. Know, we have people that are really doing some interesting things with it. Um, perhaps something along the lines of like um, the uh, the Phoenix and uh, oh, ill harmonic. The ill harmonic. Yeah, of course. You know, so uh, I I think that maybe. That will get more people out once seasons start once orchestras start playing again. Let's hear some new sounds. Let's hear some interesting sounds. Let's let's go ahead and put a DJ in the middle of the orchestra. See what
1: happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the it's. I'm glad you mentioned DJ. That's actually a a great transition as we get ready to get into this third movement. Uh, One of the things that I talk with uh, Dr. Louise Toppin about is the evolution of black music. Uh, I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B during Mm. our conversation, and uh, not only did she say you know acknowledge affirm that it's important to know something about the evolution of black music as as it applies to today's music and being uh you know familiar with today's artists, something that she said that I found really interesting was that she's looking forward and hopes to get to see what comes next. Mm. What can mm-hmm. you imagine? What's after hip hop? You know, considering how you know the Negro spiritual went from you know blues to gospel to jazz R and B. You know, so we have all of those steps along the way. The next one is going to be wild. Mm. That's going to be something else. What's
2: after Monday? What's after <laughs> right. Nas X? What's the next evolution?
1: Right. Uh, well, um, for, uh, I'll have some more information on Dr. Louise Toppin in the in the description. She's a, a soprano coloratura opera singer. Um, she has been embedded in blackness and the intersection of uh, race and classical music all of her life. Uh, we actually start the interview by, uh, she talks about some of her um, upbringing. Um, her father uh, was integral in uh, turning Black History Week into Black History Month. So, so much history um, there. i really excited and um, honored to be able to present um, uh, Dr. Louise Toppin to you. Uh, one of the other things uh, that she does, she heads a nonprofit called Vedamus, and among the many things that they do in supporting and promoting uh, black classical music, uh, they uh, do a lot of recordings. And there's a piece by William Grant Still that I heard for the first time, thanks to one of those Vedamus recordings. It's one called Enanga. It speaks to um, a West African sort of harp uh, instrument and and mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and and incorporates all of those aesthetics. Um, as we transition into my conversation w- with Dr. Louise Toppin, I wanted to share a little bit of that recording and honor, uh, once again, as we uh, continue to honor Women's History Month, uh, the woman who I first heard playing this harp feature called Ananga, Ann Hobson Pilot, a mm. historic black musician, um, one of the first musicians across the country to um, receive tenure positions in American orchestra. She started started with the uh, National Philharmonic, um, a historic woman who I hope um, everyone will look up and learn more about. I'll have some information on her in the description. But in the meantime, here's my conversation uh, with Dr. Louise Toppin. Here's a little bit of William Grant Stills and to get us there.
0: My elementary um, experience was on the campus of Virginia State. They actually had a laboratory school. And it's just at the end. My brother and my cousins integrated the high school I eventually went to because I'm seven years younger than they are. But that tells you how close some of the issues were uh, for us. But it does mean that I did go to an integrated high school. My parents were honored at the White House because of my dad. So he navigated spaces that allowed me, even though he was the president of the ASALH, that's the society that um, led the legislation, but he also was on the um, American Historical Society. So he he worked in an integrated society and had us, you know, go along with him. I'm the, I'm the, his youngest daughter, his youngest child. So of all the children, I lived the most in an integrated society. Um, and so he had taught us that there are two histories, but they are really one. Mm-hmm. And so, when I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I was a pre-med major, and I also took music, and I was the only black student over there in the music department. And so it was unusual to me because I'd gone to a black Episcopal church growing up. so my my world was primarily. African-Americans, but they took us to the symphony and to other spaces that we were the only black people.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We went to the opera, we went to the symphony, we went to a lot of things. So I think that because of that, my parents made making a conscious effort to make sure that we knew how to navigate the world at a high level because he was,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I think that that was what um, made it you know, possible at, at, at UNC. I will say that the UNC did a great job. They had a dean. I can't remember what his title was, but all the black students, he called us together first day of school. We were all sitting in an auditorium together, the entering class. So, you know, they were trying to connect us from the beginning. They had a peer advisory program that if you were doing well in your courses, you were hired to tutor other students. And so I remember being a junior, and my assignment was to tu- to tutor athletes. And I went to school oh, wow. um, at the time that Michael Jordan was there. So I went to the athletic dorm, and I saw Michael Jordan was there, Sam Perkins, James Worthy. They were all um, in the same class, um, or the you know the same era of of time that I was there that's not who I was tutoring. I was tutoring football players,
3: uh-huh. but, uh,
0: I, but it was, but that's how much of a responsibility that they'd already set up this system on campus before, long before I got there. So it, I made it work and I, I sought <laughs> out those who thought like me and those who, um, I could work with.
1: So what's been your response to this sort of, uh, I hate to call it a renaissance, but the so-called renaissance of black composers and just blackness in general. I mean, even in my lifetime, I've seen black people move into a more pro-black sort of thinking than, (laughs) than than I've always seen. What's been your response to that?
0: I've actually said to people, it is amazing. I've been doing this work for more than 30 years. And yet I feel like I just started my career because (laughs) there is so much. And I've lived long enough that I saw the renaissance in the 70s coming out of the civil rights era where black students were pushing universities, white institutions to add black history um, perspectives on courses, and of course, my dad, being at Virginia State, he was part of that and helped with the African American Studies course at Virginia Commonwealth, the white institution mm-hmm. that was only thirty miles away from us. So he taught at two universities later on in his career uh, because he, they wanted him that much. So I saw that, and so it's it it is just it's shocking to me the. Uh, you know, I've I've spent my career as a performer and to get a call from the Kennedy Center asking me about um, a black composer when I've sung at the Kennedy Center as a mm-hmm. singer. And they're now calling me about, can you help us? You know, it's just absolutely. I'm still flabbergasted that this is what this year is. But I'm also gratified and hoping that we take advantage of the fact that we've had this resurgence mm-hmm. and that we don't let it become a one-time resurgence, as it has as has happened before. I mean, it's not like this hasn't happened before, right? But it's it's happening with a different intensity that I hope is a sustainable intensity.
1: The deeper I get into this work, the more I'm seeing corners of the arts field specifically that I didn't always have that much knowledge or experience with. You know, despite having uh, made a living as an orchestral bassoonist for a decade, when I've started to talk with opera singers and opera professionals, there are just so many norms and so many names that are new to me, much less the Black person who has never had a professional connection to classical music. What hope do we have of getting Black stories on these stages and getting them performed in an authentic way when the lack of a Black audience seems to be the bigger challenge? Yeah.
0: Well, I think that, that you've hit it on the head that we... It's like it's a it's a catch 22. If you're not telling black narratives, why would black audiences, except for maybe those who have studied in the academy and are already trained in, in music and appreciate Mozart and everybody else? Why is a new audience going to come to the, the concert hall? If you're trying to if if you're trying to affect the masses and bring them into the concert hall, you're not telling their stories. So, I mean, poor and Bess, as much as the world loves it, and it is a great employer for Black people, it is not a story that is uplifting or positive from the Black community. Mm-hmm. And I've had the opportunity to sing both Clara and Bess and spend a lot of time with that story. So I know that. I know the power of it, but you're talking about drug dealers. Someone is raped in the show. You're talking about a, a poor community
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, that doesn't have education. So that's a story that is not um, one that uplifts the black community. Then you have Tremonitia that was the century before mm-hmm. that is a poor, uh, that is a, a young woman, an African-American woman that is uplifting her whole society. And so that one is not received the same kind of uh, sustained performances that poor and Bess has. The music's different. It's dated because it is dealing with ragtime music. So it is different. But it's interesting. That's been the closest early work with a black story that you know, that the Black community might want to hear something talking about uplifting education. My hope is that because of this reckoning, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. at this moment, that we are starting to get narratives. I mean, Margaret Garner was was uh, created a couple of years ago, which is the story of a Black slave woman. Again, it's not, uh, she drowns her children. So it's not the um, again, it's not a, a, a positive, uplifting kind of story, right. but we are starting to see some. And I think that with Anthony Davis telling the story of Central Park Five and winning the Pulitzer for it this year, that I think that we do have an opportunity and that companies are now taking it seriously. Um, because, as you know, as an orchestra music musician, orchestras and operas have been, been the last two bastions to mm-hmm. not really... Um, embrace stories other than the ones that will drive the ticket sales in their opinion. And yet, Porgy and Bess has been the opera that's been used whenever ticket sales were needed. So it's kind of interesting. Black people come for that one particular opera, but we don't try other operas in order to engage that same community. It it would mean more work as well that you have to go and do PR, right? In the, in the community, you'd have to go take the players out to the community and the singers and actually talk to them to get to entice people to come. You'd have to do a media blitz mm-hmm. like they did do with Margaret Garner, you know, that really brought in people out of curiosity. So I think that I think we have that opportunity. It's how how is it taken on? We also have the issue that with opera companies, you only have two artistic directors at the highest level. You've got Wayne Brown at MOT and you have um, Battle, uh, I'm not, Afton Battle at, t- at um,
1: uh, Fort, uh, Fort, Fort Worth. Is
0: it? I was trying to think yeah. of which one in Texas. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So those are the only two leaders. And without an administrator, um, or administrative team that's interested, how do you bring these stories forward?
1: Yeah, and for me, bigger than getting Black folks into the opera house to expose them to the you know so-called beauties and brilliance of opera, there are stories there that we as a people can benefit from knowing. You know, right. one, one of the most upsetting things to me when i think back on my upbringing and my education is having never been told the story of tulsa and and black wall street that was something i learned as a completely grown adult i wasn't no kind of student when i first learned that um i'm sure that you've heard about you know some of the the drama that's happening in the opera world in Tulsa and, and having having that narrative uh, put out on the stage, it's a, it's a very, I see it as a very sticky situation, a very yes and situation. What are your reactions to um, Tulsa not allowing this story, in essence, to, to be told to more people?
0: Well, and it is, it's a nuanced um, and sticky situation. As you said, I know for, uh, to the two people who are at the center of this on either side, Howard Watkins and Daniel Romaine were both colleagues of mine at Michigan. We wow. all did our degrees <laughs> together. So we've got two different perspectives. And also I know and, and respect Denise Graves um, for her work. And so why I say it's nuanced, I wish that I wish that before it went into the media, that, and we don't know what all the correspondence is, but it seems like it should have been a conversation between Daniel Romain and Denise Graves about the text, because the text that is the problematic line is a text that has been used by Nina Simone. Right, in exactly, a song. exactly. You know, Kendrick Lamar who to pull Pulitzer from music. The, we have the, the words, but also as an artist, I know that there is sometimes that difficulty if you don't want to sing a certain text or like mm-hmm. religious reasons or something. But since it was a commission specifically for that person, it just seems to me that on the nuanced end, why did that not happen? Um, what is unfortunate is because of the way it is pulled, now it has another look and perception. I actually brought this to my African-American art song class this morning. We just happened to have it and some were saying, This is bringing back those same old stereotypes of silencing a story. And you're right that this is an important story of Tulsa in 1921, that the audience certainly needs to hear it. But did it have to happen this way? Was it really, um, it's a control issue that You've given a commission, you've said use whatever text you want, but then you criticize the text or right. one one word within a text and pull the entire commission. So there's problems. But of course, I don't know the full story wasn't on the, the email thread, but I think. What one of my students did say is, well, by doing this now, I really want to see the piece. So <laughs> <laughs> in essence, there are going to be people who want to hear this piece now because of it. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what's the next piece of this. But I feel sorry for all three parties who are put into uh, an awkward situation and they all think they're right.
1: Yeah. How, That's all i one of the things that i learned again you know my blind spots in opera i didn't know that um singers that performers really pulled that kind of weight within opera houses which uh, you know is is encouraging for me to understand um on one side on the other side i think about the potential dangers of you know a a singer not wanting to you know sing something and i'm not speaking specifically uh to miss right. graves as much as i'm speaking to the idea of you know a white singer not wanting to you know be a part of something that affirms black folks i mean do you see potential dangers there do you have experience in 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 that
0: well sure i do see it on on all levels but um So it's kind of interesting. At one point, the singer really did, when opera started, the singer really did rule. Whatever the singer wanted happened. But then we actually came to a point where the singer did not exert control. Like the average singer would not be able to say, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. They would just be replaced. And that has happened many times. And yes, I have had experiences in which I knew of people who were fired for whatever.
3: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: when you're the star, though, on a certain other a level where um, your name being lent to a project is what makes that project successful, then you have a whole nother conversation. I don't know that I'm answering you very well, but um, we there are, there are, again, nuances of mm-hmm. How many times, I don't know how many times Denise Graves would have had an opportunity to say, I don't want to sing a line. But again, to me, it seems odd that there wasn't a compromise worked out because the bigger picture and the bigger issue is this piece needs to be told or a piece around this certainly needs to be certainly needs to be told. I hate that the story's squelched. Yeah. Um, rather, I hate that it happened the way it unraveled and that the story was going to be squelched rather than let's figure something else out. But no, I've never had the kind of control where I could uh, stop a project.
1: Have you found yourself in the position, you know, you, you say, you, you know, have never been able to stop a project, but even so, have you found yourself in a situation where there was a lyric or a narrative that you didn't feel comfortable using your instrument to put forward?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is with the commission, because I've uh, premier done the world premiere of a whole bunch of, of works, um, the thing is, I've always had the opportunity to work with the composer. And so that's why the the world would never know it that I have had an opportunity where I've said, um, can we can we look at this?" And the composers have said, fine, let's work on it. And we've worked on it together. So you know when you're doing a commission, that's part of the thing. If you're writing a commission for my voice specifically, mm-hmm. then all the composers I've ever worked with wanted to have a conversation with me about it. I remember one composer wrote a piece that had something like seven high E's, and I mean E6 <laughs> for me. I have the notes, of course I could sing it, but it was like a 10 minute piece and there were there were six, seven of those things. And I said, can we work this differently? If you want the text understood for uh, clarity... Can we work it differently? Or these this doesn't the text doesn't set well with this. Can we singers do that all the time? And that's why I said I'm sort of puzzled as to how it got to this level instead of really a private conversation, Denise Graves and Daniel Romaine behind closed doors working on the on the libretto. But yes, I have been in that situation many times where um, you know it wasn't singable. Yeah. <laughs> without without the nuances of this is how my instrument works, let's work together. And every composer I've ever worked with, uh, there's never been one that said, you have to sing it this way only. They're, they listened and they said, okay. Or they said, I would prefer not. And I said, okay, we'll work on the way you have it. But yeah. it's a conversation.
1: Yeah, a collaboration, a piece, it's all it's
0: about. A collabor- yeah. Right, to me, that's what a commission that's for me is about, it's a collaboration
1: yeah one of the things that i'm excited to not have to ask you is your experience with black music because you just you put it out there not only is that your brand i think it's worth noting that it's even in your bio and, and and the way people describe you you know you aren't you aren't talking about the brilliant roles that you've sung of rossini and and mozart and all these people you're really affirming the value of this black music in in every way is this a testament to what you were lucky enough to be exposed to is there some sort of intentionality behind it because again so many of us you know folks my age and younger came up through our education not knowing half the names that you know you celebrate in your work what's what how how did that happen
0: Well, as I was saying to you at the beginning, because I have a father, I grew up with a father who talked about uh, African American history. That let me know that there were uh, there were composers as well, and I grew up on the campus of Virginia State with Undine Smith Moore. I was there when she premiered some of her music, so. Other composers came through. I saw black composers in action. So I had no doubt that they existed and they wrote wonderful quality music. Then, of course, I did my bachelor and two different masters. um, And it wasn't until I came to University of Michigan as a doctoral student that I actually had my first course in African-American music. And it was that history course with Raylinda Brown, who is known as a Florence Price scholar um, that was eye-opening to me. And she was just from Yale. That was her first appointment as a young scholar. So she was just starting all of her Florence Price work, um, but also having the legacy of Willis Patterson as the first African-American on Michigan's faculty who started that whole art song um, push to, in the modern era, to really educate students to those. Between those two things, I did my dissertation on African-American music And that I didn't know where it was going to take me. I was singing Mozart and Donatetti and everybody Mm -hmm. else my opera like everybody else. But what was fascinating to me was very early on when I was hired to do, you know, say a recital at a university, I would say, what do you what do you want me to sing? And they would say, oh, whatever you want. Well, don't tell me I can sing whatever I want, because I would do something like a first half of traditional music. But the second half would be all African-American music. And the longer I did that, the more the whole program became all mm-hmm. African-American music. And I would insist that I not be hired just in February. Yep. I would do this throughout the year. And so I normalized it. So for me, for 30 some years, I've just sung programs of African-American music in multiple languages. That was the other is I wanted to make sure people knew that we are not a monolith that we sing in all languages, all musical styles, that there is much depth and breadth to African-American vocal repertoire. Um, And so, yes, everything that I, I proudly put all of that on my bio. And, um, you know, for me, this is, as I said, I feel like my career has started over again, but this is what I've been doing all of this time. It's just that, I'm stepping into a different light in this present
1: moment. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a spiritual performed in French somewhere in in <laughs> west in French speaking West Africa. I mean, that is a lot. That is a lot yeah. to, <laughs> for me to wrap my head around. You know, yeah. in the in the same way that you affirm, um, and and put value. On um, black music, I love to affirm musical training as something that happens well before class, before college. You know, I talk about um, my my connections to the spiritual as far as the black church. I wonder um, what your earliest memories are, or if you have an earliest memory of the spiritual. Do Do you remember learning a spiritual for the first time, or or anything like that?
0: Yes. Well, I have a couple of of, of ways to answer that. Um, I grew up on the, well, I said I grew up on the campus of Virginia State University, but I actually went to elementary school at Virginia State. And so the environment, because it was the faculty and staff, the children of the faculty and staff of Virginia State, um, it was an all African-American environment. And so we would do things like learn songs, including spirituals, and we, every child had to learn "Lift Every Voice and Sing" because every event on that campus, whether it was political, athletic, it didn't civic, it didn't matter what it was going to be. We were going to sing the national anthem and all three verses of "Lift Every Voice and Sing" from memory. I also, my family um, is a, my my father was an Episcopalian, so we grew up in a black Episcopal church, mm. which. It, it, right, We're the, <laughs> our family's from the West Indies, so it's going to be a mixture of high church in terms of Bach and Beethoven, but you're also going to have spirituals, and you might have a little Andre Crouch even slipped in there, um, you know. So it, it was quite an eclectic um, group, uh, and even our um, the the chanting part, the the psalms and things, the music was written by black composers. So that the the uh, the minister of music at our church was the university's organist. So he was bringing in all of that. So yes, we sang spirituals. Undine Moore set some spirituals for the children's choir. That was her her church was across the street, and so our church choir and her church choir, the children's choir, were singing her works, um, and you know we were sort of her tests. That she would have us test out some of this music. So my recollection of spiritual, and then many of her works, like her, I was there for her Afro-American Suite when it was premiered, and that's based on spirituals. So I was also hearing Nobody Knows the Trouble I See, the alternate tune. I heard in her work for the first time. And I do remember that asking, what's that tune? And my father said, that's nobody knows the trouble I see. And I said, that doesn't sound like nobody knows the trouble. He said, yeah, this is another tune of it. So that taught me. And he would always take, my parents would take any um, musical event as an opportunity to learn
1: Mm -hmm. and to teach something new. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, those arrangements here in a second. But, you know, before we got there, you know, well, before I ask you this, I I have to say this sentence, the Negro spiritual does not need white validation. I just want to make sure that that is clear. With that being said, having the story of folks like Dvorak does not hurt, you know, do you see that affirmation? as consequential? You know, he came here and affirmed, as he said, Negro melodies as the foundation to, you know, an American school of music, but that is not what ended up happening. So, I mean, is, is have, at least not to an extent. So is having that story of Dvorak, um an important one to spread? Was that a consequential statement on his part?
0: Oh, it's interesting you say that because I do think that what, what I'm finding interesting in this moment, and as I've I teach about spirituals, is spirituals have stayed with us through African American composers. The arrangements that, that Burley did, where it's really an uh-huh. exact arrangement of spirituals, that gave way to a new source material for this, the spirituals. And even composers like David Baker, he evokes a spiritual. There's a stretto moment in one of his pieces called Status Symbol. He's got da 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 in the right hand of the piano it's up at you know e flat six so you wouldn't hear it unless you slowed it down you realize that as the text is talking about the um movement of black men through and women through society he chooses to put a spiritual in there or he actually later writes a piece six six uh composition the original compositions evoking spirituals but they're not spirituals but he uses spiritual titles mm-hmm. and so the presence of spirituals and, and adolphus hailstork will embed a spiritual in a heartbeat in a piece and you have to listen carefully but you'll find the contour of a spiritual in there
1: yeah the um, of spirituals
0: exactly well yeah. yes I mean, he has a direct sweep, but I'm thinking like the song of Ruth and Mary that he wrote, I sang those and I noticed the, the story of Ruth and Naomi in the Bible, um, and treat me not to leave thee, then there's um, sometimes I feel like a motherless child is embedded in there. And I said, well, how brilliant is that he's punctuating the fact of these two women who are leaving their homeland for another land and that, what that loss would have felt like. So. I, I, you know, yes, uh, it, it was Dvorak's work was important. Also Samuel Coleridge Taylor though, who mm-hmm. came and encouraged black composers to use the source material. So it wasn't just one person. And I always try to tell my students that, that there were several people from Europe who had to um, encourage the first generation of african-american composers to use the spirituals because they didn't want to preserve music from enslavement right and it's only later that this music has become foundational and still lives through african-american composers and now there are there are many i try to call them allies who are writing pieces using um spirituals they love the folk music um, my site has been trying to get the singing community to recognize that these compositions de- deserve to be treated as art songs in the same way that they treat cult blends folk song arrangements as art songs. They, th- It's quite often that we'll have songs mm-hmm. and spirituals. Right. Instead of, Spirituals are a part of the body of sp- of of song. And I'm I'm partially guilty because I founded a comp- a competition with George Shirley in which I did pull out spirituals and say you're required to do a spiritual, but I didn't know how else to tell them that we're valuing and want young people to learn spirituals, but we do talk about it being as a part of a collective art song format.
1: Yeah. And I really appreciate how you, again, contextualize that music as the source material for so many of these uh, orchestral works and, yeah. and chamber works. Uh, yeah. The challenge, I think, <laughs> from, from my perspective anyway, comes in when we're talking about the actual voice and contemporary recreations vocally of this music. I'm, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I have to ask it. How do we deal with the all white choir singing the spiritual? I mean, what what is how? Do, where do you even begin have, having that conversation? The implications therein.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I'll 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 tell you. I'm I'm still working. I'm still working on that. Um, I teach a course in African American art song, as I said at Michigan, um, and it is one that the students are required to take. It is about to happen, so that means I will have students of all. Um, ethnicities. And I do right now. I currently have have every ethnicity in there. And I talk about spirituals. We spend time, because how can I talk about African-American art song without talking about where it comes from? Um, And they have to experience it. I need them to sing um, and understand that when they sing Let Us Break Bread Together in their church services, they are already singing spirituals. And that that's okay. We're glad that they love and and embrace those pieces, but that there's a different treatment for those that are in dialect. There's different, what you have to study it and give it the same attention that you did your German leader, your French, um, you know, melody or chanson, You, you can't just pick it up and say, okay, this is folk music. I just need to do whatever with it. I, I try to teach them to give this music um, dignity and the, the, the context that it deserves. And so your answer about what do you do with the all white choir? Well, part of me is in order for this music to live, we do need everybody to embrace it because we, we both know that if we rely on a very small segment to embrace African-American music, as, as we talked about the first day in my class, Black people are seen as the authority of this music and they don't know it, so they don't want to deal with it initially in a class like that. White people are feeling like they're afraid they're going to appropriate this music, so they don't want to sing it. So now who's singing? Mm -hmm. It falls through a crack. And I said, that's why we have to take the care and the time to find out what is it that concerns us about singing this music. And the biggest concern we all have is that it's not treated well. It's not contextualized well. And so I would say that, yes, if your choir is going to sing, the all white choir is going to sing it, I would hope that they would do coachings with someone, whoever that someone may be, who can appropriately help them with language, with style, with rhythm, understanding that there are performance practices that go with it. And there are enough people around who really have this knowledge that there's no reason not to bring in an expert i mean just like at schools if they're doing something by a composer from i don't know norway right they would bring in someone from norway uh, before our choir would do something i bet you they would bring in someone to really work with them on the language and the performance and the that's what every school does but somehow sometimes when we get to spirituals, churches and, and schools don't necessarily take that same care.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that's what upsets people, upsets us all, is that it's not being treated with the same care. You'll hear temples that are way off the mark and making it sound frivolous, instead of have the solemnity that these pieces had.
1: So you're saying that more times than not, they're singing it too fast.
0: <laughs> uh, my, the, the person that taught me to sing spirituals, I didn't say, was Sylvia Olden Lee, and she was a stickler. Um, she was the first Black person at the Metropolitan Opera on the staff in the 40s before Marion Anderson.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so she was just such a stickler for the speed of it because she said, think about what you would have been doing with this music. Yeah. That, yes, there were... Certainly there were, you know, dance after, um, at the camp meetings. Of course, there were, there were fevered dance, dances. Um, and as people got the spirit, but there also a lot of it is not that fast. So yes, my issue is that, that some of these, the, the, the text just becomes so f- happy. And I'm not saying that there's nothing because there were jubilant pieces, of course, but it just feels like quite often they all just take off at a fevered pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't seem to retain the character of what these pieces would have, how they would have functioned. Because I also teach functionality is important to know coming from Africa, how were these pieces used? How was, how was vo- vocal music used in Africa, which then transcends into the first generation of the enslaved Africans and would continue down the line. So
1: you mentioned um dialect in dialect i'm thinking back to um so again i i was always an instrumentalist but my senior year of high school i joined the show choir and and did that thing i ne- i needed a a period to fill out and it was in that class that i first learned the spiritual sooner will be done now saying the phrase sooner will be done isn't as much of a challenge when we're talking about in dialect as some of the other um uh period how can I say like period performance sort of vocabulary? Sure. I mean, I, I guess I don't even have the, the vocabulary to really explain what I mean. When, when you're talking about in dialect, are you talking about the the show nuff and I'm guine do this and, and that's, yeah. that sort of, you know, yeah, that language. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Know. Knowing that G-W-I-N-E is going to right. in one or the D-E, the articles, d dos den that you're softening the language that deals with how did people speak and how did they use their tongues in their native tongue? So that, that, that you're finding a way, I'm going to the east, I'm going to the west, that you can speak it so it sounds natural instead of I'm going to the east, I'm going to the west, which is when that shows a person has not studied the language as a language. I work with my students on how to uh, pronounce it so that you are paying diligent, doing due diligence to what was a whole new dialect. Um, and how do you approach it? Because if you're saying any of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, which not only African-Americans, but non-African-Americans love setting Dunbar. And a lot of Dunbar's pieces are in dialect. So you still have to know James Weldon Johnson also mm-hmm. wrote some pieces that are in dialect. So it not only... Uh, is incumbent upon us to learn how to sing dialect well for spirituals. You can avoid it by not singing spirituals, but there's a lot, a larger body of work that would be ignored if one doesn't look at how to work with dialect.
1: Yeah, l- looking at the culture, the larger picture yeah. from which this, this music comes. Wow. As, as we begin to wrap up, I want to uh, fast forward to 2021. I want to fast forward to now. We acknowledge as so, as we do and as so many composers have the spiritual as Black folk music, even Black classical music, as many people, including Nina Simone, um, had affirmed. As the spiritual evolved into blues and gospel and R&B and the different things, where right now we're at hip-hop and rap, is, is it fair to call it a classic music, a classical music. I, I try to affirm that language. You know, maybe even as today's black folk music. Where, where, where do you, 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 and you mentioned Kendrick Lamar and uh, and those folks for, from your perspective. You know, knowing what you know and having experienced what you have. Where does hip hop sit on that timeline?
0: I mean, I I call it concert music first of all instead of classical music mm-hmm. because I'm I'm thinking music that is intended for a concert hall, but with what i do with with african american music they bring every every movement that we've had as you just said jazz blues gospel and hip hop it's all in what we have today because if that's the expression in the music that I, I i i was working with a composer not too long ago and he said his two favorite um styles an african american he said renaissance music and hip hop and but that's not unusual. That's what you're hearing, young people. They're listening to hip hop and they're listening to. I was sort of surprised on the Renaissance end. To be honest with you, <laughs> <laughs> I was like at least classism, but because yeah. <laughs> I went okay. Um, but you could you could hear it clearly. His his contrapuntal writing was taken from the Renaissance, and the clarity of his vocal line. And then, but you could hear sampling because there was one piece I had to do and I felt like I was looping back and back and back. And I wrote, I, I called him and I said, is this sampling? And he said, exactly. He said, you, for, you you nailed it. And I said, because that means we as performers have to also stay current. Does that mean I sit and listen to a lot of hip hop? No, it doesn't mean that I necessarily, but does it mean I stay current and listen to some, of course, there are young people in my family. So I'm not, nobody's immune. We mm-hmm. all listen, but, but I listen with interest. I remember in the eighties being a doctor student at late eighties and early nineties, being a doctor student at Michigan. And we were listening to what MTV coming up and what was happening in terms of this music. If you're a musician, I think that we always remain curious and we always um, affirm that there is value in any artistic expression, at least I do, yeah. so that even if I'm not listening actively to it, I'm still interested in the evolution. And I UNC, I actually created a course from Africa to Hip Hop, because what I tried to, to show as a thread is just as you had African griots mm-hmm. that, who told the story and talked while, while um, playing music underneath it on their instruments, such as a cora, you have modern day, these are modern day griots who are telling the same stories of their village, of their community over music. And the music underneath is reflective of the generations before. So they are pulling with them music fr- throughout, th- musical threads throughout our community. So to me, it's, it is a continuum. I'm excited to see where our musical, what's our next musical creation. Yep. I'm not saying get rid of where we are, but we are constantly evolving. And I think that when you look at African American music, the brilliance and the, of the creativity that has come through each and the innovations in each of these forms, we've been at the forefront of the musical innovations not that everybody else isn't contributing but we have had a lot of these innovations we've been the uh the the, the genesis of this the music that we're hearing today and appreciating so
1: we gotta is- get we gotta get Megan the Stallion or the baby to bring us baby. back to our roots and sample something go. with the cora or something. And see, I know who
0: that <laughs> is. I actually know Megan the Stallion. So Saturday Night Live.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> How can folks uh learn more about you and, uh, and and more about the work you're doing?
0: Um well I have a website, louisetopin.com, is my personal website, um, which needs to be updated. Um, but my two that are really updated the george Shirley competition.org um, it's, it's actually george Shirley vocal competition org and that is a competition that we do annually um, I started it 10 years ago with George Shirley as a vision to um, be the first competition on all african-american music and we started with my one thousand bucks and we now give away thirty thousand dollars to students from age 18 to 34. 32 in three divisions and we have a composer's division on top of it. And a lot of um, black opera stars have given special prizes. Um, as a part of this, but we're more than a normal competition because we do classes, we do master classes and musical classes to teach people about the style and the context, how to talk about it, how to learn about this. So I'm very proud of that initiative. I've also done one called the African Diaspora Music Project.org. That's another website. And that one is providing repertoire resources so that people can go and search what's there in vocal repertoire. I started with my own three or four thousand pieces, and we've now expanded into the orchestral world to try to help with what is available. Um, we're doing publishing for both of these projects to try to, or prompting publishing because we recognize we can tell you where music is, but if you don't have access to right. a score, that right. does us no good. So there's big pushes in uh, in my uh, space, my mind space, right now with all of that. And then lastly, my organization is vidamus.org. Vidamus is a nonprofit founded in '86, and it was. One of the early organizations that the goal was to bring to light the work of um, of women and African-American and underrepresented composers. And we've done concerts for children. We do recordings. We've done scores. Um, but our main focus with Redemus as the parent has been the George Shirley competition, because I'm also a professor at the University of Michigan and still singing professionally. So I have my hands. <laughs> I'm a little bit just a little bit <laughs> I have five minutes in my life. But, uh, no, it's but it's been a delight to do this work. And as I said, to do it in a sustained way, I look at the students that I've trained that are now the next generation of scholars and performers. Um, and, you know, as you said about Tulsa, not only, I noticed on the cat on the list of some of the other singers, some of my own former students mm-hmm. are Taylor Raven was one of my students at at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and I worked with Leah Hawkins um on in some classes at Morgan. So I know the next generation. and I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see their names associated with African American music because as a teacher, I was that teacher who gave everybody in my studio African American music. And as they researched, they found out it was a Black composer, not because I Mm. said, and here's your one Black composer. It was your seven songs for this semester are blah, 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 blah. And uh, embedded in there would be always at least one that was an African-American. And they didn't. My students never learned that there was they thought that's how everybody did.
3: Right,
0: right. (laughs) So, you know, as I've talked to people around the country, I've said, you never know what one voice can do. You know, just as with what you're doing, one voice can make a big difference.
1: I found that in spaces where I'm talking about the spiritual, there is always at least one person who is beginning this journey, who has never heard of the concept of a spiritual in your years of teaching. I'm sure you've seen some of that as well. For the person listening right now who has never heard a spiritual or at least never actively thought about hearing a spiritual, you know, as they're hearing it, where do you where do you get them started? What is the spiritual that everyone needs to know as the as the foundation, as the starting point on this?
0: Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> that is a really hard one. The one that speaks to me. I mean, unfortunately, it's going to be one that I recorded. So that's not <laughs> exactly right. But one that I, I end every concert is guide my feet while I run this race, for I don't want to run this race in vain. And to me, that speaks to what we should all be about, is not wasting our time and the effort, the energy, and the life that we have been given by not doing something that furthers life for others and makes life better for others. So that's a Jackie Harrison arrangement um, that I recorded on a CD called I Love But A Day. Um, And I've had so many people come and I've sung that around the world. Certainly he's got the whole world in his hand. Margaret Bonds has been one that speaks universally to people and it should, especially in times like this. So that's the other one that I think everybody should know that um, uh, Daryl Taylor sings one, my friend Daryl Taylor sings one, Lord, I'll go. And it's just, you know, that I'm a willing vessel to go where I'm sent to work into the world. So for me, the ones that sort of speak to who we need to be, um, those are the ones that really speak to me and resonate with me. And I would say for somebody just delving into this work, yeah, go check out some of those that help to give you a mission, go do something.
1: One of the things that is so fun for me, something that I'm beginning to see, is that as we uh, begin to, as we continue to feature more and more people on Triloquy, the lines of connections are really interesting. (laughs) So Bill Doggett, who we featured during Black History Month, you know, he's known Louise for years. And, you know, they were colleagues and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm just, you know, able to offer even more perspective on how long how, how long-fought this effort is in uh, in centering uh, blackness in classical music, affirming things like the Negro spiritual and other black aesthetics as American classical music. It's it's really moving to just see us as a part of this continued struggle. I wanted to know, before we get into the triloquy, one of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Toppin and I talked about were these white choirs singing the Negro spirituals and how there, you know, really should be someone black there teaching it properly so that these, you know, uh, choirs can spread it on to more people properly and really given some dignity and respect to this music, the same respect that we give uh, to, to everything else. My question for you is this. In your line of work, when it comes to radio production and um, and radio hosting and that sort of thing, do you think there's a situation uh, that you can think of in which it would be beneficial to have that black person in the room?
2: Most of them. Okay. Um, well, I mean, let's go back to the Tulsa uh, opera example. Mm-hmm. Um, is Tobias Picker black? No. Okay, and and he said that this was this didn't occur to him that it would be a race a right. racial. Okay. Well,
1: it occurred to all the black people. If you
2: if you had a black buddy (laughs) or somebody working there that could tip you off to that, then you avoid stubbing your toe and falling down very publicly, like 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 we have here.
1: That's the tricky thing, though, because didn't we read in that article that they do have a black person there? Tobias Picker does have a black buddy that's affirming
2: the okay issues. (laughs) I I missed that part. Thank you. I I didn't I didn't know that part, but yeah. that's not to say that if you have an all-white staff that you shouldn't be putting in the effort. Right. What I'm saying is it will be much easier for you moving forward if you have people of color uh, in the room, on staff, on the payroll, helping you to make these decisions. You'll, you'll get further farther, I think.
1: The challenge is is that when a lot of these institutions do that, they find the palatable black or the black that can tell everyone, see, I'm not racist we, we, won't, we won't go there today. I'm thinking of, shout out to you. I won't say your name. Shout out to you. Let's get into the triloquy.
0: We know that this flag is drenched with our blood. As we know, this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country. And if we don't have it, you ain't going to have it either because we going to tear it up. That's what they're saying. They know what they've done to us all across this country. They know what
1: they've done to us. The, our little transition clip there came from Fannie Lou Hamer. Scott, again, when we're talking about how long fought this battle has been when it comes to black classical music and getting it all on the stage and, and all of that stuff, it's a microcosm of the, the bigger issues, okay? Quickly, we have the Chauvin trial happening you know right now only thing i want to say about it is that um and i think i said this a couple of weeks ago i feel that collective stress of it mm. they're already mm-hmm. protesting tonight right, n- right now as yep. as we're as we're recording this uh peacefully we should
2: say minute minute minneapolis is not on fire okay like a lot of people outside of the twin cities think that <laughs> riots are still happening every day here no right now it's
1: a peaceful protest um I, I, we'll we'll see. Right. I, I, I can't really stomach to watch it. I, I'm not watching and doing all that. I can't bear to do it. No. that That is a lot of emotional energy for me to to watch it. So. I had
2: only seen clips, and today was the first day that I saw the full thing front to back. Mm. And I will never do that again because I don't like snuff films. but uh, it's it's horrifying. it's it is absolutely abhorrent and grotesque.
1: So to everyone here in the Twin Cities and to everyone elsewhere, you know, I, I wanted to offer this part of the triloquy just to say it is okay to be feeling it right now, feeling the stress, feeling the anxiety. I'm always on this podcast talking about using gratitude as your means. I definitely still believe in that. I'm also affirming that this is a very fucking stressful time. It so is. there's that. Okay. Um who I really need to just throw the finger at, I almost said throw some trills at, you know, as to be on theme, to, but to really just, Georgia is so ghetto. Mm. Let's think about um, Fannie Lou Hamer, what she was talking about way back when. And here we are living through it again. Stacey Abrams went down there and got people voting, got people um, uh, the ability to really participate in what should be foundational, what is allegedly foundational to the United States, to our government, to our structure. And those white people just had to had to fix that right up, didn't they? Right. I mean, this happened quickly. I have an article here from The uh, Washington Post. It You know, there there are so many aspects to this um Th- this anti-voters' right legislation down there—that's ridiculous. This is this is something that I wanted to bring up just to highlight how pernicious it is. Uh, the uh, the title of this is opinion: Georgia Republicans' ban on giving voters water epitomizes the GOP's disturbing priorities. What could be so dangerous about letting these people who are standing in line for hours to vote? have a little bit of comfort of a damn bottled water. Yeah. What? Much less some of the other things that I've been saying, um, uh, things concerning uh, rolling back um, provisions when it comes to mail-in voting, mm-hmm. of course, voter ID right. issues going through.
2: Um, cutting the number of polls and the number of drop boxes, all these sorts of things. I guess if you, if you, if you need to go and get water or food or you need to go to the bathroom, then maybe you won't get back in line.
1: Right. Right. Right.
2: So yeah, it's, I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, and I clearly members of the GOP there want to come out and say, well, no, it really, it's, it's, it's adding more protections. It's adding, um, and, and then they want to start big upping,
1: you know, gaslighting you into it. Right. Um, it's not just Georgia that is messing around. We're, we're, we're hopping around to a few different places uh, today. I'm reading an article here. Again, all of this will be in the description. This is from The Guardian. Arkansas and South Dakota pass bans targeting transgender minors. That'll learn them. So we were talking, uh, when we were talking about Lil Nas X, we're talking about these parents who say, oh, well, the negative impressions and how I always say it is a parent's responsibility. Mm-hmm. That is your child. Mm-hmm. That's what I say about this. That is those that 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 child does not belong to the state that that child belongs is under the care of those parents. And those people act like parents are out here just trying to make their kids trans, just trying to indoctrinate them into Mm -hmm. something, just the violence Mm -hmm. that people from the outside, you know, they will protect that fetus everything about that fetus but as soon as a person is out here and wants to affirm themselves then as you're on your own that's a that's a problem that's a problem even here beyond the Chauvin trial Scott um, there's some there's some very ugly things happen legislatively in Minnesota you want to talk a little bit about that
2: right there was uh, uh, the Supre- I'm, I'm reading here from uh, the story online uh, that you can find it in lots of places but uh, the Washington Post is uh, reporting that the Minnesota Supreme Court has ordered a new trial for a man convicted of raping a woman who was drunk. The justices ruled that the state's definition of mentally incapacitated does not include voluntary inebriated victims, meaning in order for it to be raped rape during inebriation, the woman would have to have unwittingly been given alcohol or some other drug. So if she willingly drinks and goes beyond a certain point, it's no longer rape. He's, he's, he's going to get this. I don't even know this man's name. I'm not going to repeat it, but evidently we'll uh, get a new
1: trial. And I'm looking at the, what sort of precedent? I'm looking at the date of this. So this is a the the one I'm looking at says March 26. So we're in the middle of Women's History Month. Think about the history mm. of women who a have been afraid to speak out against rape and sexual violence, sexual assault. B, the ones who have and have been uh Dragged through the mud and 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 defamed and I mean let's I mean women's history let's talk for a second about uh, Monica Lewinsky as much as everyone liked to joke and say different things how can how how could she go get a job you know what oh, her what life was, was ruined what was her life how how did she make it how how did she survive and so in in light of all of that history we have. We have things like this, and it just shows how slowly, how how just incrementally things can change and and transform a whole society. It's really scary. It's really scary to see what is law, what is what is in the books, what is being allowed to be put in the books. Mm. It makes it hard not to want to just, as I always joke around in this in this opus, even go down to the Bahamas, work at McDonald's. Think
2: about the precedent that this sets going forward, though, and we already have instances where we tell women well what were you wearing right and how were you acting were you dancing provocatively were you you, you shouldn't have gotten yourself into that situation whereas you know we we <laughs> we teach the women our young girls to behave a certain way to be safe mm-hmm. what are we doing with the young men what are what,
1: they're not doing a goddamn thing. That's what, and it's pitiful. is it is
2: it the boys will be boys philosophy writ large? What?
1: Because those boys who grew up in these structures now are in positions of power where they get to uh, extend that boys will be boys violent discourse. Into law, if it's not policing a woman's body, you know what is she worried? Now we're policing a woman's ability to to go out and have a good time. For goodness sake, we're saying that a woman should not drink alcohol if she plans on having sex. No, that that's basically what this is. I, I know that's
2: what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Yeah, that it says no, don't <laughs> don't drink if you plan on having sex.
1: What if the I'm arts, worried about the president. What if the arts, Scott, can be the light? on the top of this hill what if the arts if anything you know is far away from liberation from actual progress I would say is what we call classical music what if the arts could really sort out all of this stuff get these James Levine's out of here we actually address racial equity and what it means we put money And other resources toward black led, women led and people of color led initiatives that can allow us to do our thing. If y'all at the Met and the Chicago Symphony and X, Y and Z want to continue with the Beethoven and the Brahms, let us do our thing. What if we could be that? That's one of that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me from selling all of these computers and microphones and, and leaving. Mm. That's what keeps me from doing that, thinking that we can be the example. We are all the leaders of our own movements. you know, uh, it's something that uh, my my Buddhist practice teaches, something that you can get from anywhere. you You don't have to be a part. Uh, you you don't have to be looking toward a leader. I'll say, mm-hmm. to be a part of change. We we can all do that. We all, in our individual ways, in the in the different circles that we go through, we can be that change. And if we aren't doing what we can on the ground, that's how we have stuff like this. That's how we have Georgia making sure that folks can't vote in response to uh, Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. doing everything she could. You know, Arkansas and South Dakota with the, uh, with the trans people not being able to get their medical needs, you know. And then, of course, we're talking about um, what's going on in Minnesota in many different ways when we don't speak out against things when we see it when you see the woman at the bar who's going home with somebody who maybe she doesn't know and and but you're like oh that's that's not my business that's how those many that's how those things multiplied by a populace turn into legislation and law and normalization of of things that we have to we have to fight against it seems like sometimes we're taking steps backwards So as we wrap up here, um, again, this last opus of uh, the Triloquy podcast for Women's History Month, um, I brought in a quote by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that that, uh, resonated with me, and maybe it'll resonate with you. She says, justice is about making sure that being polite is not the same thing as being quiet. In fact, oftentimes, the most righteous thing you can do is shake the table. Scott, I appreciate your... uh, shaking the table with me here.